All right, brethren, there goes the bell, so it sounds like it's time for us to get started. Good to see all of you this morning. Trust that you all had a good week, and uh, let's go ahead before we look together at our passage. Let's open up in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for the many blessings that we've received from your hand even this past week. Uh, Lord, we thank you for our health and our strength And above all, we thank you for the Lord Jesus and for all that he has accomplished on our behalf. We thank you for the privilege of being able to gather with your people freely this morning, to be able to worship you, to fellowship with one another, to sing your praises. And Lord, we pray that as we gather together, that in all that we say and do, that your name would be glorified, that each one of us would be encouraged and built up, And Father, we pray for any who may gather with us this morning who as of yet do not know you in a saving way. We would ask that this would be a day of salvation for them. We pray that your spirit would be at work in the hearts and lives of many, not only here in this place, but wherever the gospel is preached this day. We would ask, Lord, that you would be pleased to draw many to yourself. We thank you again for your goodness to us, and we thank you for the hope that is ours through the resurrection of our Savior. And Lord, we pray that as we look together at this hope once again this morning, that you would encourage our hearts through this. We long for your presence in eternity, and Lord, we long for that day when we will see you face to face. And uh, we do pray that uh, as we are reminded of these things this morning, that our hearts would be encouraged that way. And we pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, if you were here in the evening service, I think it was five weeks ago now, um, I preached on the exact same passage that we're going to look at this morning. Um, I had started preparing, actually I had, for the most part, finished that sermon uh, sometime close to Christmas time and then found out that we were going to be starting a study in First Peter. And so Bob asked me after that sermon if, if uh, I would consider teaching on this again. So if you were here, I say all that to say that if you were here a few weeks ago for that sermon, uh, many of the things that we'll be going over will be familiar. Uh, some of the things, I've, uh, I've added some things and taken out some things just so that it wouldn't be exactly the same. Uh, but I trust that as we look together at uh, the believer's hope, the living hope that we have, through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, that our hearts would once again be encouraged. So if I could have you turn with me, please, in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. Our text this morning will be verses 3 through 5. And follow along with me, please, as I read. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Well, we noted last week in our study of the first two verses of uh, 1 Peter chapter 1 uh, that this letter was written by the Apostle Peter to those believers who were scattered throughout the region of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And these believers were experiencing, and they were, as it was brought out in last week's Sunday school lesson, 
was going, were going to experience in an even greater measure in the future from when he was writing these things, continual suffering, trial, and persecution on account of their faith in the Lord Jesus. And Peter is writing this letter to encourage them to stand firm in the midst of these afflictions. He reminds them that while they are in the world, they are not of this world. They are strangers and foreigners here. They do not belong, and that's why the world is oppressing them. Their citizenship is in heaven. And throughout this epistle, we find that the Apostle Peter is reminding them of that fact. He reminds them, uh, as we saw last week, that they are the elect according to the foreknowledge of God. And as we continue to study through this book, he's going to remind them of this by, re- by, by reminding them of different titles that they possess. Not only are they the elect of God, but Peter later on will refer to them as living stones. They are a chosen race. They are a royal priesthood. They are a holy nation. And they are the people after God's own possession. And it is to these people that Peter is now seeking to write these words of encouragement and exhortation. And he begins by reminding them as the children of God that they are the possessors of what Peter refers to as a living hope. We see this here in verse 3 where Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We are reminded here in this statement that in accordance with his great mercy, God has begotten us again unto a living hope. Now this word that is translated here, living, is a verb which literally and simply means to live. It's nothing more complicated than that. To live or to be alive. Now, if you have the King James Version, you will have noticed that this word is translated lively. God has begotten us again unto a lively hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And again, this word simply means to live or to be alive. And so with this in mind, let us begin this morning by asking the question, what is it that Peter is referring to when he says that these believers have been begotten again unto a lively hope or a living hope? Well, Mr. Webster defines hope in a general way. If you would turn in your dictionary and look at that, the first definition is a very general one of hope. But the second definition that he gives is hope in the theological sense. And he writes as follows with regard to this definition. He says, hope in the theological sense is confidence in a future event, the highest degree of well-founded expectation of good, an expectation founded on God's gracious promises. A well-founded scriptural hope is in our religion the source of ineffable or inexpressible happiness. That is the definition that is given to us by Webster. And Webster is saying here, and he's exactly right, that the hope of the believer is different 
from all other hopes because of the fact that it is firmly grounded in God and in the gracious promises that he has revealed to us in his word. That's a sure hope, brethren. If we have our hope based upon that, we have a sure hope. It's a hope upon which we as believers have a firm and unshakable assurance. And therefore it is, as Peter confidently refers to it, it is indeed a living hope. It's not a hope that is cold. It's not a hope that is inoperative. It's not a hope that is dead. But rather, it is a hope that is active. It is powerful and has a profound effect upon every single aspect of our lives. And as Webster rightly stated, this well-founded expectation of good based upon the gracious promises of God was the source of inexpressible happiness for these believers to whom the Apostle Peter was writing. And it's true, is it not, that hope grounded in anything or anyone else, especially as it relates to the well-being of one's eternal soul, is indeed a hope that can only be characterized as unfounded optimism, which from an eternal perspective is no hope at all. And how often do you and I hear of unbelievers around us, some of whom are very religious people, say that we hope that it all works out in the end. They hope that God will overlook their sins and deal favorably with them because of their good works. Or they hope in the claims of some other prophet or false deity that if they simply adhere to a list of their demands that it is going to be well with their soul. Well, the Apostle Paul reminded the believers at Ephesus in Ephesians 2 and verse 12 of the dreadful and hopeless state that they were in prior to their conversion. He said to them that at that time, that is the time prior to their conversion, that they were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul here says that they were without Christ. These people to whom Paul was writing said that they had no acquaintance with the Messiah. They had no knowledge of the Savior. They were unaware of God's gracious provision of an atonement for sin, and therefore they could have no assurance or pardon from it. They lived in a state of spiritual darkness and condemnation, and nothing but a saving knowledge of Christ could deliver them from that dreadful state. He continues on to remind them that they were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise. They were ignorant of and therefore deprived of the benefits and privileges and the blessings that belonged to the people of God to whom they were given. As Paul reminded the Roman believers, the adoption, the glory, the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the service of God, and the promise, whose are the fathers, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came. These people to whom Paul was writing knew nothing of these things, the blessings that God had given to the people of Israel. And then if that wasn't enough, Paul adds these words, having no hope and without God in the world. They had no hope 
and were without God. And that was the exact same state that all of us were in at one time ourselves, wasn't it, brethren? The natural man who is dead in trespasses and sins is without hope and without God in the world. And he is without hope because of the fact that he is without God. And that's the tragic and miserable state that all who are without Christ find themselves in. But bless God that the opposite is true for those of us who have been born again by the Spirit of God and have now become the children of God. We are not in possession of a dead hope, a false hope, or an intangible hope, but rather we are the possessors of what Peter refers to here in our text as a living hope. And why is it a living hope? Well, here in our text, Peter gives four reasons as to why our hope as believers is a living hope. First of all, note with me that our hope is a living hope because God is the source and giver of it. Our hope is a living hope because of the fact that God is the source and the giver of it. Immediately following Peter's introduction to this first epistle, he launches into this lofty note of praise directed specifically at the person of God the Father. And the reason why he does this is because of the glorious truth that God the Father is the one who is not only the source, but also is the giver of our living hope. He says at the beginning of verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a living hope. Now we've already noted from Paul's words to the church at Ephesus that without God it is impossible for a true, genuine, living hope to exist in the soul of any man or any woman. It is simply impossible. And in our lost condition, we are without hope and without God in the world. But the only way possible that we could ever possess a living, eternal hope is if God in his grace and mercy comes and gives it to us. There's no other way. In Romans 15 and verse 13, the Apostle Paul prayed, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. God is here identified by the Apostle Paul as the God of hope. And this title implies that God is not only the source of all hope, which he is, but he is also the giver or the dispenser of all hope as well. And since this is the case, Paul rightly prays that the source of hope would cause the believers in Rome to abound in hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. And this same truth is presented very clearly here in these words of the Apostle Peter. He praises the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the God of hope, all hope, for giving unworthy creatures such as ourselves this living hope. As God is the source and giver of this living hope, he reminds them of three things relating to this important truth. And the first thing he reminds them of is that this living hope is ours because of God's abundant mercy. 
This living hope is ours because of God's abundant mercy. As sinners, you and I could have no hope at all if it were not for the fact that our God is a merciful God. Mercy is an attribute of God which gloriously shines forth throughout the pages of Scripture. And it makes it clear that God is not only merciful, but he is also one who delights in mercy. Mercy is, as Thomas Watson rightly referred to it, God's darling attribute which he most delights in. Who is a pardoning God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. A.W. Pink calls this attribute of God his adorable attribute for which he is greatly to be praised. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. The mercy of God flows from his goodness, and it demonstrates his ready and willing inclination to relieve the misery of sinful creatures. It is an attribute that is intimately related to his grace in the sense that it is not in any way earned, but rather it is freely given to the objects of that grace. And so this living hope is ours because of the mercy of God. Note with me also the adjective that Peter uses here to describe this mercy. He says that according to his abundant mercy... He has begotten us again to a living hope. God's mercy towards sinners is abundant. Elsewhere in Scripture, it is described as great. It is described as plenteous. It is described as from everlasting to everlasting. And this word means large in quantity or great in its scope. And when we consider the greatness of our own sin and the high-handed rebellion against God, It is a glorious truth to meditate upon that though our wretchedness was great, the mercy of God toward us was even greater. The hymn writer rightly stated, When all thy mercies, O my God, my rising soul surveys, transported with the view I'm lost in wonder, love, and praise. And this living hope is ours because God, the God of hope, freely gives it to unworthy, hell-deserving sinners according to the greatness of his mercy. And as a result, we have a living hope because God has exercised toward you and I as believers his abundant mercy. But not only is this living hope ours because of God's abundant mercy, but secondly, I want us to note that this living hope is ours because of God's regenerating grace. This living hope is ours because of God's regenerating grace. It comes to us, Peter says, through God's regenerating work, that work wherein the Spirit of God breathes life into the heart of a man or woman that is dead in trespasses and sins. Peter says that God has begotten us again, to a living hope. This, this term begotten us again is a clear reference to the new birth. And it can rightly be understood to say that God, according to his abundant mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope. 
And this is exactly what the Lord Jesus was speaking about to Nicodemus, wasn't it, in John 3, when he said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's absolutely impossible for you and I to have any sure hope in this life and in that which is to come unless God by his spirit graciously removes our hard and stony heart and replaces it instead with a heart of flesh, a heart that is made tender and desirous after the things of the Lord. And so Peter says that we are begotten or we are born again unto a living hope. And this is accomplished through the regenerating work of the Spirit of God. But not only is this living hope ours because of God's abundant mercy and his regenerating grace, but it is also ours, Peter says, because of God's preserving power. It is ours because of God's preserving power. If you look down a little further in the text to verse 5, Peter reminds these believers that those who are partakers of this living hope are assured of obtaining all that God has promised because of the fact that God will preserve them to the very end. He says that they are being kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter reminds them that you are being kept by the power of God. The term that Peter uses here is a military term, meaning to keep by guarding or to guard with a garrison. Its tense indicates that this is a continuous action. In other words, you and I as believers have the assurance of obtaining all that God has prepared and promised to those who are his, because it is by God's power that we are continuously being kept or guarded throughout our earthly pilgrimage. Our hope, then, is a living hope, because we have a sure confidence in the fact that God, who has begun a good work in us, will most certainly perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, we have the confidence that our salvation is secure, our future glorification is assured, And our eternal inheritance is certain. And so our hope is, first of all, a living hope because God is both the source as well as the giver of it. But let's note secondly in our text that our hope is a living hope because of the fact that we have a living Savior. Our hope is a living hope because of the fact that we have a living Savior. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And as we read these words of Peter, it's vitally important for all of us to understand that the resurrection of the Lord Jesus was not a mere addendum to the saving work that he came to accomplish. And while it's absolutely true that our hope, as the hymn writer rightly declared, is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus was absolutely necessary in order for his atoning work to be effectual on our behalf. 
Passages such as Isaiah 53 in verses 11 and 12 and Philippians 2 verses 8 and 11 make it abundantly clear that the resurrection was, as it were, God's unmistakable stamp of approval on all that Christ accomplished, both in his life and in his death. And by raising Jesus from the dead, God was once again clearly proclaiming to all in heaven, on earth, and in hell that he is well pleased and fully satisfied with the person and work of his Son. Isaiah declared this when he said, He shall see the labor of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. And then Isaiah uses that word, therefore. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. The Apostle Paul, echoing this exact same thing, writes in Philippians 2 that Jesus, being found in appearance as a man, humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And then Paul uses that word, therefore, again. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow of things in heaven and those in earth and things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And most assuredly, this living hope is ours because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And what Peter essentially is saying here is that you and I have a living hope on account of the fact that we have a living Savior. In other words, if Christ did not rise from the dead, our faith as well as our hope, as Paul declared to the Corinthians, is vain and we are all yet dead in our sins. Paul said in chapter 15, verses 17 through 19 of 1 Corinthians, If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But not only is our hope secured by the resurrection, it is also a guarantee for the believer that one day our mortal bodies will be raised again and made like unto his glorious body. Our hope is a living hope because the resurrection of our Savior confirms for us that Christ's sacrifice for our sins was indeed an acceptable sacrifice to God. And it guarantees for us that because Jesus lives, you and I as believers will live also. But then thirdly, we've seen so far that our hope is a living hope because God is both the source as well as the giver of it. Secondly, we've seen that our hope is a living hope because of the fact that we have a living Savior. And thirdly, I want us to note this morning from our text that our hope is a living hope because the promises and purposes of God will most certainly stand. 
Our hope is a living hope because the purposes and promises of God will most certainly stand. Because of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus from the dead, we have the assurance that all that God has purposed and promised for his people will most certainly come to pass. And Peter reminds his readers of two things that are central to their living hope. He reminds them, first of all, that God has promised a heavenly inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, and unfading. Peter says here that God has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Everything that exists around us is perishing. It is defiled by sin and it is fading away. But we as believers do not hope in these things. As the children of God, our hope is fixed upon a promised eternal inheritance. And again, this was not obtained through any merit of our own or through the works of the law, because those who are under the law are not heirs of this inheritance. Only the children of God, who have been born again and adopted into his family, having been given all the rights and privileges of sonship, and in whom resides the Spirit of God, who is the earnest of that promised inheritance. Only these have a just claim to it. This inheritance, Peter says, is an incorruptible inheritance. In itself, it is free from corruption. And in addition to that, it cannot be corrupted by anything outside of itself. It is immune from the decaying and destructive effects of moth and rust, which temporal inheritances are subject to. And that's exactly the point that the Lord Jesus made in Matthew chapter 6, when he said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break through and steal. And so our inheritance, Peter says, is first of all an incorruptible inheritance. But Peter also tells us that our inheritance is an undefiled inheritance. It's an inheritance that is pure. It is holy. It's an inheritance that is free from the defilement of sin. In fact, it cannot, it is impossible for it to be defiled in that way. Furthermore, it cannot be possessed and enjoyed by anyone other than those who are undefiled, those who have been made so through the blood and righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is an inheritance that will never be nor can be defiled by sin. But then Peter also says that our inheritance is an inheritance that does not fade away. It's an inheritance that doesn't fade away. Unlike the world and all of its glory, whose inheritances and possessions will ultimately and quickly fade away, this inheritance that is reserved for the children of God will never diminish in any respect. 
It is an inheritance that is eternal. And then lastly, Peter says that this inheritance is an inheritance that is reserved for us in heaven. It is reserved for us in heaven. The term reserved here means to guard or to keep something. And what Peter is saying is that you and I as believers have the unwavering assurance that our inheritance, which is incorruptible, undefiled, and will never fade away, is secure because of the fact that God himself is reserving it for us. He is the one who has promised it. He is the one who has secured it for us through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus. He is the one who has given us his spirit, who is the divine pledge of that inheritance. And he is the one who is guarding and keeping it for us, who are the heirs of salvation. And where is it that Peter says that it is reserved for us? He says it is reserved in heaven. It is reserved in a place that is out of the reach of wicked men and devils. It is far removed from the corruption and the defilement and the passing nature of this world. It is being kept and guarded in a place that is safe and secure and infinitely glorious. And brethren, this inheritance belongs to you and I who know the Lord. It belongs to us. And so God has not only promised a heavenly inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled and unfading, reserved in heaven for us, but Peter says he has also purposed a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. God has purposed a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And Peter reminds his readers in verse 5 that they are being kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And so not only is our inheritance divinely guarded, but those who are the rightful heirs of it are also kept or protected by the power of God from ever being severed from it. All of those whom God has predestined, called, and justified, the word of God makes it very clear that they will most certainly be glorified. God has purposed it, therefore God is going to accomplish it. And Peter said that it is the believer's continued faith in God that gives evidence of his keeping and preserving work in the life of his children. Hebrews chapter 13, 3 and verse 4 says, We have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. Peter then concludes by reminding these believers of what God is yet going to accomplish for them and to them when Christ shall return. He makes reference here to a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And scripture frequently refers to our salvation in terms of the past and the present and the future aspects of it. When it speaks of us having been saved, that is looking back to our justification. It takes place the moment that one believes in Christ. Romans 5 and verse 1 says, having been, notice again he's pointing back to the past, 
having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we are saved in the past tense. That is always theologically referring to as our justification. But scripture also speaks of the reality that we are being saved. Being saved in the present tense. And that is speaking of theologically our sanctification. The ongoing process whereby the Spirit of God is more and more conforming us into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of God. And so we have been saved. That is our justification. We are being saved. That is the Spirit's work in our hearts and lives in our sanctification. But then Scripture speaks of our salvation in the future sense. It says we will be saved. And theologically, that is referring to an event that is yet to come, which is our glorification. Paul speaks of this in 1 Corinthians 15 and verses 51 through 58, where he writes, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? And here Paul points forward to the return of Christ. When the dead in Christ will be raised and their bodies along with the bodies of those believers who are alive at his coming will be changed. When mortality will be exchanged for immortality and our bodies will be made perfectly like unto his glorious body. And it will be then that our salvation will be fully realized and we will throughout eternity rejoice in and experience in all of its fullness the things that God has prepared for those who love him. But note with me lastly then from our text that our hope is a living hope because of the response that it rightly produces in the soul. Our hope is a living hope because of the response that it rightly produces in the soul. In consideration of this living hope that we as believers have what ought the response of our hearts to be in light of it? Well, first of all, our lives ought to be marked by God-honoring worship. In light of this glorious hope that we have, this living hope that we have, our lives as believers ought to be marked by God-honoring worship. For the Apostle Peter, as well as every believer, the first response that this living hope ought to produce in the soul is God-honoring worship. As we consider the fact that God, who is the source of all hope, and has given us this living hope through his abundant mercy, his regenerating grace, 
and his preserving power, and that it is ours by virtue of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And in addition to that, we have the confidence that the purposes and promises concerning our future inheritance and glorification will most certainly come to pass. What ought our response to be in light of these things? Well, Peter clearly demonstrates what our response is to be. As his heart is filled with these truths, he begins in verse 3 by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. His whole heart is full as he meditates upon these things. And the only thing that he can do in response to that is lift his heart and his voice in praise to God for his goodness and grace and mercy. And so he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the proper response of all who by God's grace have been made the recipients of this living hope. But our second response ought to be in light of this is that our lives ought to be marked by an unspeakable joy. Our, our lives ought to be marked by an unspeakable joy. And we're going to look at this, whoever it is that's uh, going to be teaching next, next coming Sunday morning, they're going to be looking at this joy that exists in the heart of the believer. But in consideration of this living hope, Peter then continues in verse 6 by pointing out the response that was clearly evident in the lives of these believers. He says, in, he says to them, in this you greatly rejoice. In what did they rejoice? Well, in the context, they rejoiced in the hope of eternal salvation, in the glorious prospect of a future inheritance. These things were to them the source of highest joy. It comforted them. It sustained them. It enabled them to rejoice even in the midst of tremendous suffering, trial, and persecution. Peter says in verses 6 and 7, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Not only then should this living hope produce within us God-honoring worship and unspeakable joy, but it should also cause us to desire after genuine holiness. It should cause us to desire after genuine holiness. Peter is going to address this matter a little later on in the chapter. In light of all that he has set up to this point, he exhorts these believers down in verses 13 through 16, Therefore, Gird up the loins of your mind. In light of all these things that I've just said, he says, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. It's clear from this statement of Peter that there is a very close connection between the believer's hope in what Peter refers to as the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ 
and personal obedience to the commands of Christ. John makes this similar connection over in 1 John chapter 3 and verses 2 and 3 where he writes, Beloved, now are we the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And then John says these words, Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. The supreme desire and hope of any true believer is to be like Christ. And all of our aspirations as it relates to the world to come can be summed up in this statement that we long to be, glorif- we long to be like the glorified Son of God and throughout eternity share in His honors and His joys. Bottom line, that is the essence of our hope. And since that is the case, both Peter and John make it abundantly clear that such a hope will most certainly lead the child of God to earnest efforts to become holy like our Savior. Not that we will perfectly reach that place here in this life, but you and I press forward daily with the help and strength of the Holy Spirit, confident of the fact that one day when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Well, brethren, let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we stand amazed as we consider this hope that you have granted to us. Lord, when we consider all that is ours through the person and work of our Lord Jesus, when we consider our future inheritance and the glory that we shall know and experience throughout all of eternity, we would look upon ourselves and say, what are we that you are mindful of us? What are we that you have caused your son to come and to die on the cross for sinners such as us? What are we that you should choose us from the foundation of the world and that you should draw us to yourself in your grace and that you should... Give us such an eternal hope and such a living hope. Father, we pray that even this morning our hearts would be caused to rise to you in worship and thanksgiving and praise and joy. And Father, we pray that the reality of these things would change us. We pray that and earnestly desire that we might indeed be made more and more into the image of our Savior. And we look forward to that day when we will both body and soul We will be made perfectly into that image. Lord, we pray that you would bless your word to our heart. We thank you for those things that we've been able to consider, these words of the Apostle Peter. And Lord, we pray that we might rejoice in them. We would ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.